Welcome to Project Monolith, Episode 7. Today, we're talking about the Knights Templar, and we'll also be going into a bit of epistemology. In other words, how do you know what you know? And to discuss this with me, we have a rematch with a guest that we've had before. He was actually on Episode 2. Even though we've had a few other guests since, well, we've really had the comments from on YouTube and on my Podbean account that have really been, should we say, generally nice towards my guest here. And obviously my guest today is uh, Original Simulants. So hello there, OS. Uh, how are you today? I am good. Thanks for having me back on. Anytime, mate, you know that. Just like to say the, the little special we did, so which was your recording you did back in May with your own guest. I thought that was absolutely amazing, mate. It was, really, it was a really fantastic talk, and uh, I'm so happy that you shared it with me, and I know other people have uh, enjoyed it as well. But obviously, that was just a warm-up, really, for today. We knew this was coming. As I say, what I'd like to really talk about today from my side is that uh, you let your little secret out to me that uh, you're indeed what you call a modern day Knights Templar and we know or many people think they know what this Knights Templar thing is clearly they don't and and even I, I can honestly hold my hand up and say that I didn't genuinely know that there were still groups that associated today with the Knights Templar even though I did know the rumours because it is just a rumour that a uh, of the Freemasonic orders are or were kind of originated from the Knights Templar themselves, which is always denied and has been denied since 1312 when uh, the Knight, the real Knights Templar were supposedly disbanded by uh, Pope Clementine V. I don't know if you want to just give me a little bit of just a little bit of background on, should we say, your journey to this Knights Templar thing, OS. But I know a lot of people are going to probably find this quite interesting. And for me, I'm, I also know that, you know, a lot of people have bad thoughts and frown on Freemasons. And while my, myself, I actually know quite a few people who are Freemasons. And I also know there's quite a number of people on certain sites that we're affiliated with that, that are also Freemasons. So, And for me, it just tends to be a, a bit of a, an old gentleman's club more than anything, uh, with a lot of people doing a lot of good things for for charity reasons and whatever else. But yeah, so please give us your take, my friend. Well, I have been a... Knights Templar for about, I think about three years. And uh, the Templary is, is the, the final part of the, what are called the chivalric orders in the uh, York Rite of Freemasonry. The Freemasonry proper is the Blue Lodge, which is your first three degrees, then cul you know beginning in, in entered apprentice and culminating in the Master Mason degree, which is the, the highest and most important degree, the third degree. That, the one that makes you a Master Mason is, is kind of like the pinnacle. But there are also other degrees for those who are, have a want to explore other bodies. And degree I use in a, as a term that's not hierarchical, but might be depicted that way, but just more for ease of conceptualizing it than for any real hierarchical top-down kind of thing. So it moves laterally, uh, it moves um, horizontally, but it's kind of depicted vertically, if that makes sense. So the Knights Templar is the third and final order of the chivalric orders of Freemasonry, and this is part of the uh, the York Rite. So the, the York Rite is, is the Blue Lodge in America, that system. The Scottish Rite, you might have heard of, this is where you, you're, you're at, the 33rd degree is part of the Scottish Rite system of Freemasonry, who number their degrees, starting with like four and going to 33 in that order in one body. The York Rite is broken up into different bodies with like the, Mar the Royal Arch of Freemasonry, the Mark Masters, some of what's called cryptic masonry, and then uh, ultimately the chivalric orders. And I'm 
belong to all of those on the York right side. So there's no quote unquote higher degree that I could ever get in, in Freemasonry. Uh, if I were to become a 33rd degree Mason, it would, I would, it would be like uh, equal. That makes, if that makes sense, I would be, you know, have both my feet on the thing. So instead of just one. Yeah, that all makes total sense, OS. That's how it's kind of organized, right, for now. I became one a few years ago when I moved to Florida. I had not in, originally intended to, to join any of the side orders, but I'd met the Grand Commander of the state of Florida kind of by synchronicity, I suppose. And uh, we'd kind of hit it off. And through him and the and his uh, what's called the uh, aide-de-camp, uh, I became very good friends and pursued that. So that was my foray, you know, the beginning of my foray into into that part of it. The Templars that originally, right, the, the story is a knighthood can be only granted by the, a sovereign, like a monarch, or by a uh, the clergy. The crown and the gown are the, the only two powers that can grant knighthood in the West, uh, classically, to make it legitimate. So the Templars were an order of knights specifically created by the Vatican, uh, by, the, by the office of the, uh, the Holy See, and they were created as independent from the Holy See operating kind of without made free to operate as they as they saw fit you know without without the uh, authorization without the need for the authorization of the vatican for their operations their task uh, originally was to safeguard the highway during the crusades for pilgrims to travel between christendom and uh, the holy lands so pilgrimages were a major part of the christian experience at the time and the christian experience in christendom was just life in general you know, there was no separation of religion and identity in, in the modern sense. This was something undertaken by practically everyone who, who had the means or ability to do so and, and done so kind of eagerly. You know, they, they kind of quested out this kind of like their own personal quest, so to speak. So the role of the Templars was to safeguard the travelers along the highway from, from bandits and other bad actors, whether those be organized or, or, or disparate or whether they were real or imagined, at, at least is, is how I see it. And of course, the, the authenticity of these, what I'm talking about, events of seven and 800 years ago, the, the authenticity of these events is hardly sterling. But operating under the kind of allegorical dramaturgy, incorporating into the modern life, it's, I, I find tremendous value in it anyway. You know what I mean? Whether the the history was real or not is irrelevant as as we kind of are living the history of the future now so it will be true then if that makes sense it will be true tomorrow whether it was true yesterday or not it's kind of irrelevant so roll it just uh, back to freemasonry and just to have, i have one question about freemasonry for you because i have over the years i have done a lot of reading on freemasonry itself obviously in the act realm or the alternative conspiracy realm there's so much bullshit basically so much bullshit spread around about freemasonry and but over the years ultimately what i arrived at with freemasonry itself the whole thing seems geared up and to be really about the development whether that's spiritual or physically of the individual so to attain basically be the best you can be and obviously working within the the mason frameworks and helping each other out and and all this kind of thing is that right what i'm saying is is that a true a true thing that it is ultimately about uh, really bettering yourself and that's there's not really a lot more to it is there than that as in as in freemasonry i mean not what we're going to probably touch on in a bit well well i mean there's not much there's not much more to anything than trying to better yourself honestly and it's is a it's an yeah it's you're you are right about that in the short the short answer yes i can't speak for everything obviously you know even though i think i can imagine that some listeners will interpret any speaker as uh, representing 
all of some, as in some monolithic thing, right? But the truth is, from my experience and, and from what I, my research and what I understand and, and my real everyday life, yes, you know, this is, it's a, it's a place where men who are interested in it, they might not be, it, you know, all things are on a spectrum, but it's a place where at least men are, men who are at least interested in, in improvement, in being better than they, than they are, or trying to be better, at least. It's a place where they can go and at least share their, in private, their struggles and their uh, triumphs with that, without having to suffer, you know, the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, you know, ridiculed by people who don't understand or, or contempt or being criticized or something like that. You know, it's at least a place where you can share freely or should be able to feel like you can those things, what, how it's going on your journey. Uh, it's not some pro proscribed journey. It's not some A to Z paint by numbers thing. Uh, you start here and you arrive at, once you get to point F, here the light switched on. I mean, it's nothing like that. It's, it's a place where people who are interested in, in personal development, you know, it's a place where a lot of uh, people, it's an, when I went there, uh, I, you know, my heart was just really broken, uh, to be honest. And it was, it was a good refuge, you know, and that's kind of what I'd intuited. And that's what I needed at the time. It was kind of a safe place to kind of heal up. The world will break your heart all the time. And the more you try to share your vulnerability with the people who are kind of infested by the institutions of the world, it can really be a struggle that produces kind of a, at least some kind of like a bit of a neurosis, you know, where, where you kind of become afraid to share anything, but you can't internalize all these things because the reality is, is too overwhelming. If you have a, if you have a big heart, the sorrow, the sorrow of the world can be too overwhelming and, and you're not going to be able to, to get through that on your own while you're still swimming in that river. So it was a, it's a place to find some rest and, and some fellowship. Right. That's fantastic. It really is. Uh, one one question or other question I have as well. So personally, I was at one time actually invited into a lodge in the prospect of maybe joining. And one thing that they told me was that you, to be a Freemason, you do have to have a belief in a creator or in an architect, as it were, of, of the universe. Now, my question to you is, you're, say you're, you're in the York Rite Freemasonry. Uh, and the thing that strikes me with the Templars themselves, as you said, the original Templars were originally instigated by the Catholic religion. So that to me is obviously uh, a heavy bias towards the Christian religion. Now, to be in the York Rite of Freemasonry and to become or bestowed the title of a Templar in your in the highest uh, degree or whatever you want to call it, would that insinuate then that you have to be a Christian to be in what we call a, the Knights Templar of today? I'll say this is a point of a bit of a point of controversy, but when I say that, it's not. The word by controversy, I don't mean the the version so loaded with negative baggage. You know what I mean? I, I mean, it's a point of discussion and kind of an unsettled, a topic that's frequently discussed, but but unsettled at the moment. So there was a time when, and there's still, I believe there's still Masonic, because Freemasonry is not a, a monolithic organization. The Grand Lodge of, of England is not, uh, the lodges of the United States, each state has its own Grand Lodge. None of them are subordinate to each other. The, the Grand Lodges are all e um, a society of equals. And the Grand Lodge of England is not, you know, subordinate to any of the Grand Lodges of the United States, nor any of them to that, right? We have, the, they have the, they're free to have their own systems. That, and then we, we are each free to, like, recognize those systems. So if, if, let's say, for example, the Grand Lodge of England wanted to, like, um, what happens in France, 
is let's say that they want to radically change uh, something about Freemasonry, which the only three tenets are the, the belief in a, su- a supreme being. When we use the language of architect, which I can get into later, but these are all means of finding linguistically. They're things that people understand without having to be too, well, what, do you, what does he look like? You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. It focuses on the things that we can easily come to, to terms with rather than the things that we could spend a million hours splitting hairs on. But but to radically come to, to radically separate from that, let's say the Grand Lodge, uh, like they did in France, decided to end the prescription that I believe in the Supreme Being. In France, they do allow atheists, right? But we don't recognize the French Lodge. So th- this is all to say that there are different systems. I believe in some monarchies in Europe that, I don't know if it's for, this is true for, but just let's say in the Netherlands, that to be a Freemason in general, you have to be a, what they would prescribe as like whatever the state religion is, some kind of Trinitarian Christianity. That used to be the case in England, and it's not anymore. And it was never necessarily the case in the United States. This is all to say that there's a bit of, there's there's no certainty on what exactly it must mean to be that. But but if you're asking if there's a heavily heavy bias, absolutely, there is a heavy bias because even the institution of knighthood itself in the West has, this is an allegorical kind of Freemasonry is the, the series of like lessons, you know, veiled in symbols and, and taught through allegory. So the allegory most accessible to people in the West is the Christian one. And this is the one that in that degree, yeah, it's going to be much more heavily biased towards that. But do you have to say like, I swear I'm a Christian or something? No, but do you believe? But do you believe in the validity or something of the of the Christian religion? Do you believe in the? Do you believe in its a value above others, for example, or something like that? Then there, you know, that is the case. But that didn't have anything to do with one of the men I received my orders with. He's called receiving your orders when you become a Templar. One of the men in the group I received my orders with was a Muslim. So assalamu alaikum. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, the again, the, going back like to the even the original Templars again, they're, they're always been associated, haven't they, with legends concerning secrets and mystery and all this kind of thing. And the Freemasons themselves today still have a little bit of that. But I think that really does come down to maybe some famous. Sure, sure. Individuals or more notorious individuals who who have been, you know, Masons themselves and have put their own stamp on things. No, yeah. And it's really not a reflection of really is what really is going on amongst everybody who's taking part in the in the different lodges. That side of it just really just it's just more stories and, and I think people just feed the beast. They really do. Well it's propaganda. I mean, they've been propagandized is what's happened. You can tell because they all have the same talking points, so many of the critics of Masonry, which Masonry, like any institution, is not above criticism and it's not a and, and nor should it be nor should any institution of men be uh, above criticism but when all the talking points are really just regurgitating the same propaganda it's clear that this is not the this is not uh well thought out criticism this is just a cult in, in many ways it's just kind of the voice of a, of a cult criticizing for some reason someone's propped it up as an enemy and these people have eagerly bitten onto it where this is really taking us anyway the whole reason i really wanted to talk about this in the first place i mean this guy goes back to the introduction and the comments that I get and do receive over and over again from people. And and the comments are about you. And the comments I get about you are always about how much empathy you come across with when you're talking on podcasts and whatever that people have heard you speak. And also your wisdom as well is always always comes up in these comments. So for me, obviously we have had a, a number of interactions 
over the last, well, the last 12 months or so now. And it's pretty clear to me, there is something special about you, mate. There really is. And when you brought up this thing about the Templars and uh, protecting the pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem, um, it does strike me that when we're, whenever I'm on the Discord server and I can see what people are posting things and then I'll see your comments on the Discord server as well. And it really does strike me that uh, you kind of living out the uh, Templar's story of old, but in the technology of today. So instead of protecting the pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem, you appear to be protecting the pilgrims on the information superhighway instead. What do you say to that? Oh, it's, it's really quite incredible to me. It really is. Considering as well that there's so many, <laughs> there is so many trolls and horrible people out there. Maybe it's not down to the fact that they have evil intentions or anything like this but they're getting a bit of cognitive dissonance and whatever and can't cope with what's been said or they're not understanding what's been said or that you know whatever the subject is that's been discussed somewhere but for me you always seem to play the um not the ambassador, but the the one who's smoothing things out by the looks of it. So, what's your take? What's your take on on this and your role as a Templar in the modern day society? I am uh, blessed be the peacemakers. I think it, it says, but <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, yeah, that's very nice of whoever made those comments to say that stuff, and really uh, humbling just to put that out there, just to say give my appreciation for that. But I think that it is. I mean, this is what. I think the mistake that a, a mistake that people make when examining um, so much stuff in the act realm, especially when first confronted with it, is there, and then especially in particular, like secret societies and the way they operate and things like that, or what they, what that even means and what the people in them are like. A mistake is to believe that uh, the role and the person are like different, if that makes sense. It's not like it would be a, easy to see why someone might think that once I became a Templar, then I decided I would do this highway patrol operation. But the reality is, it's what I, I was, that's who I was anyway. That's who I was before I was that, before I you know became a Knight Templar. The receiving the orders is just, it was just kind of what made, for me, in, in a sense, made it like official or quote unquote, or kind of brought it from the new sphere into the actual reality, you know, the process, the, the proof of concept almost. So that's to say that like I was, yeah, I mean, that is what I, I do in, in a way. I'm not some white knight or something like that in this in this cheese dick sense, but I stand for people to be bullied. It's not my job to protect the world, but if I'm already somewhere and, and someone is uh, you know unjust or something, it's wrong to not to not it's wrong to not protest that to the to the extent that you can. You know, it'd be stupid to get yourself into some kind of situation where you're worse off for doing it. You know, considerably worse off for doing it, but you're going down the same worse situation. If you don't do something too, it's just who I am. So I have to be who I am. I can't not be who I am. And that's just who I am. And when I became a, a Templar and I met all these guys, well, a lot of, guess what? A lot of these guys are the same way. Shocker of the century. A lot of these guys are the same way too. And, and it's not just it's exclusive to Knights Templar or something. It's not, nothing like that. Uh, there's, there's plenty of people out there who are, are much the same way. But, but it just so happens that we encounter each other. So here I, and I have to be me, right? They say the difference between the, the mystic and the psychopath is that uh, the psychopaths, there's an idea that psychopaths or something, they don't have any feelings. They operate like cold. That's not true. They have, they have feelings. They have their own, they have the feelings just like you have. The difference is they can't feel anything for your feelings. They just, they don't and they can't, and they don't even fucking care. Empathy is the feeling of, of your feelings. You know what I mean? That's the difference. 
And that's what I, if false modesty is half the sin, sin of pride, I don't want to sin here, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just exploding with empathy. Honestly, I mean, this, it's almost a fault sometimes. So it's, it's what I think is like the force, really. It's like the unconscious uh, is almost empathy. It's the, it's the highest form of everything. Not that I'm the highest form of everything or nothing like that. But anyone who's had true empathy or true, truly felt the feelings of another person has truly, knows that they've actually truly felt the feelings of another person. You know, they felt them for them, with them, uh, before them, after them. They've experienced it, right? And so now you're actually walking in the other person's shoes to the, to the best, you know, it doesn't get any more. You're not going to get inside their flesh body. So feeling their feelings is, is as high as it goes. And your feelings are your first, your empathy is your, is the language. I mean, it's, it's a language all its own. It, it is what telepathy is. You know, it, it is the communicator. It's, it's the highest form is when you, is when it's not thinking the pristine thoughts. It's when you, it's when actually you feel your thoughts, when the mind is kind of turned off or maybe not turned off is the right word. When the consciousness, the egoistic like pilot in the you know cockpit of the of the consciousness, is puts it on autopilot and merges the kind of the feeling being with the thinking being and the active being. You know that this is a trinity, the triangle. This is the that is the the highest thing. So you're you're feeling your thoughts and and that's like empathy. I mean, and, and when that's the case, you can't help but to do it. You know, I mean, you, you can't, otherwise you're not thinking. So if, if all the thinking you ever do is also, and I don't mean all, but you know, but the, the thinking you do, the, the, the true thinking, the introspection and the, and the um, legitimate kind of self-reflective work and those kinds of things are bound up in feeling just as much as like, I mean, I guess it would be like uh, when they're together, because they're naturally together. Let me get, get back real quick. When they're naturally together, naturally joined. And it's kind of the, the phenomena of the world and the experience of the, the million micro traumas of life that kind of fray this cord. And when electrical cords kind of frayed, it's popping sparks here and there and it's it's not optimum, right? And it's in it's many ways it's dangerous. But when it's when it when a cable is really encased and it's really all the things are flowing correctly, it's at maximum performance all the time. This is to say that, that it's it's almost impossible for me to extract some idea of feeling from thinking. My my thinking. That's a long way around. So sorry. No, it's fantastic, mate. It is clear that you do have great empathy and feeling for others. And the one thing I would say is that obviously you do have a sword in the physical world, which was bestowed upon you by the Templars order. But online, it uh, seems to me that your sword is actually uh, one of comedy. So you use wit and comedy in as your sword online that's very clear to me that is obviously always the best way of a lot of the time anyway of directing the conversation elsewhere or if things are looking a bit grim <laughs> somewhere that it's uh, it certainly is the way to change the conversation isn't it whether that's uh, typing or talking yeah I mean, it's not necessarily that uh yeah it, yeah it is they call the wit they call it a rapier Anyway, that's pretty much answered a lot of my questions that I was I had for you on this topic. And obviously, I'm not going to fill up the whole podcast about the, the Templars and whatever. And obviously, you did have this subject that you wanted to talk about with epistemology. Well, it kind of all ties in, really, with the yeah with the information and the, the information superhighway. Because by, by definition, pilgrims are kind of unfamiliar with the terrain. They're not going there repeated. It's not a commute. You know, it's a, it's a special event. You, you take it in, once in your life or something. So it's there by definition, the word naive or something would be, would be wrong to say, but they're un, a bit unfamiliar 
with the terrain and they're following the for one they're following the other people in the caravan but they're also following the signs and the way markers along the way and if you've never seen the street sign before you know how do you know it's like when in the cartoon where they would replace one sign with the other so instead of turn left it's got to go and turn right so that then the uh <laughs> the coyote runs off its cliff so yeah this stuff is all over the place by any host of, of negative personality types for, for a myriad of reasons, ranging from the professional to the pathetic, have some compulsion or vested interest in in uh, misdirecting people deliberately. Not that they know, and this is another folly, it would be to think that they know that they, oh, we got to protect this, so we'll misdirect them and put them that way. No, not necessarily. They might just, just throw some chaos in there. You know, they don't, don't mistake the psycho for having the plot. He's just a psycho in the way. There's, you can't really peg down a, a reliable reason for why they do what they do uh, because it's so vast. But the point is that it's, that there's all kinds of pitfalls and along the way. And, you know, I have ultimately faith in the things will work out the way they're going to no matter what. But there can be a lot of people who just waste a lot of people's time. And that stuff has a negative effect on those people's relationships. And it has negative effects that trickles through the fabric of society. So it's just the idea that, like, the information superhighway is tremendous because now all the information can be available to everyone all the time. I don't know how that premise became prima facie valid. The reality is is that the, the operating assumption is presented by the media presently and, and through the institutions is that there's a practically unchallengeable axiom that all that acts all access to all information all the time more or less is a some kind of universal good this ignores the idea that some information can be bad or that or maybe the, the effect of some information on some segment of people can be very deleterious or that there's some benefit to be derived from having all this. It's not necessarily unchallengeable because of the separation that exists between the the power of pr- putting the information out there and not just putting it out there, but like uh, putting it in the front of the line and especially like parsing it to the people who are most likely to see it. The power that's in that is so out of scale to the basically information consumer that they're in many ways, they're powerless to oppose it as a monolithic thing. They can reject it and stuff, of course, but they're, the access to it is ubiquitous. The idea that just, just turn it off or something, it's really not fair. So now you have all these like, um, you have all these miscreants and uh, lowlifes hanging out on the highway. Some of them just want to, someone to talk to because they're trapped in psychic purgatory or uh, other ones are trying to, you know, criminalize you or someone to kind of, uh, someone to try to like see if you'll answer all their questions. Someone, you know, some might are looking for some, but you might not ever have everything to give. So if you're a, a big hearted person or, or, or a feeling person at all, you're kind of, pr- you're kind of right for the pickings, at least for now, as it is when so much of the, this is, is so completely unregulated and, and even the, and even the mention of ideas about whether regulating you're even the exploration of these things in a broader context, even presenting the idea that it might not be a good, a good thing is, is completely screamed at. So Wild West still in many ways. And what makes people especially susceptible to this is that, they're, is that they don't really have a, a strong foundation of why they believe what they believe. They have beliefs, but then they can be presented with contradictory evidence. And while this doesn't work very well on populations at large, presenting facts or something like that doesn't seem to be relevant. People seem to be more moved by just emotion and uh, theatricity, you know, or theatrics. I mean, that in in certain segments, when you can kind of cut people into smaller groups, it can have a, a better effect on them. You know, they can be more powerful. So they've become like, you can kind of uh, reveal 
revealed behind the curtain to them. It's a bit of a magic trick in itself, but they're being led down kind of the primrose path all the while believing that this propaganda they've been they're being inundated with they're confusing propaganda for logos because it's starting to feel the same it's kind of looking the same but they don't realize that they've poured a uh, salt in the cake batter instead of sugar they just kind of grab the cups because they you know one look like the other and they're they're moved there in a hurry they're seeing all this truth they're in a hurry but when they get a big old mouthful of the cake now now it's already in them this whole how do you know what you know so when you're talking about the super information highway or the internet as it were, it's a lot further down the road, no pun intended. So you're at a stage where obviously, you know, most people are either at the end of their education or done their education. And there might be somebody who's inquisitive and trying to find something out or learn something about a specific topic or subject or be interested in something. So they go and seek a group who's interested in a particular topic and try and find out whatever about any particular subject. So, you know, that, that's kind of where the, the side of the coin you're talking about. But for me, with this, how do you know what you know? As a So taking a step back and looking back in to that as a big, big, question it, it all starts for me with the fact that we're given the english language or at least whatever language you were force-fed from when you were a baby so i see that as a as the first layer of programming as it were and i don't know what you think about that as in it's almost like right from the off before you even get anywhere near a, a keyboard or a keypad or, a, or anything like that the, the first thing that you're getting done is is having a limitation put on you with a language so and to my idea the english language is akin to 1984 newspeak the the irony of that is that is that 1984 was written in the english language yes <laughs> yes so so much much truth can still be the artist doesn't have access to every color in the universe but rembrandt can paint some amazing soul touching paint on canvas using what he's got right and being clever with the what's available to him he's it might not be perfect you know what i mean but within the limitations uh that we're given can still you know swell or we can still we can still press and do well but you're i mean of course you're right with that you know languages can be a weapon of course and and, and is used maliciously all the time to to control thought but when you use the word programming, you know, computers operate off a, uh, a computer has an operating system or, or kind of is itself an operating system, but the um, programs are written in a language that the operating system can understand. The, the computer, and while humans aren't computers, this, I think, analogy does bear some fruit. While the, the computer is bound and, and its programming is bound to the language that it can understand, the computer system doesn't isn't done any favors by trying to put a different operate uh, put a different programming like program in it or to deprogram that doesn't benefit the machine deprogramming it doesn't doesn't really help it right it's not going to make it perform more optimally with the software when it can't now it can't even read the software it could keep it from perhaps like it, it's almost like murdering the thing to dissect it almost like that, that's where that's kind of where it can lead to is what I mean. It's kind of fatalistic in a sense because you're not going to get the, the the greatest results in the world by putting some program written for uh, Mac into a PC. You've broken the programming, which is which is a big thing in the par you know paradigmatically language of the act realm, and it has its place there and it is valuable that language. But as we elevate our kind of thinking, as we keep moving on, so we find ourselves kind of at a bit of a plateau, then we we have to kind of abandon that and start going back to what we know a little bit better. And that is like, how do we use the, the tools? So how do you know what you think you know? Well, you know you're programmed. So, or you know what I mean? You know you have some programming in you. 
Now it's time to optimize the programming. Now it's time to optimize the software. See what we got. We can't rewrite the code without knowing the code. You can get in there and monkey around with it, which is what a, a lot of you know a lot of uh, uh, a lot of these bad actors find so appealing about occultism, which is exploded. Occultism is exploded, especially in the the what might popularly be called the left hand path style uh, witchcraft. These things have exploded in popularity because they offer kind of quick access to kind of a tangible thing. Like you can you throw a little chaos out there. You can quickly see things descend into, you know, become chaotic, so to speak. You can quickly see kind of the effect of your breakdown from your malignant presence. But that's not when you're operating, like when you're, you know, trying to reprogram yourself at the same time, when you're trying to break through your own programming by understanding it in the first place, which is a big process of doubting, you know, and a big process of challenging. Now, all of a sudden, some folks or, or the things they've created come along and counter them on the, in these kind of weak moments. And you can mistake the cultist for the, for the cleric. And they're more than happy to keep stringing you along. And then you've kind of gotten, not only have you gotten banjaxed on your, on your process, but now you've got some uh, hanger on that in there, you're like Yoda on Dagobah, throwing the, the parts of the X-Wing out, you know, some dark Yoda. He's in there breaking the engine apart because he's trying to find the candy bar. So this is really going to get you, on, in, in many ways, it's going to get you anchored down into purgatory, a, a kind of psychological purgatory, where your system is going to crash. Your, your, your system of mind, your psychic system is going to be so screwed up. Your RAM is so detached. Your hard drive has so many errors on it that you're just going to, the operating system is going to shut down or it'll take forever to boot in. And, that, and your programs, all your applications and your programs aren't functional, functioning well, but you can't even detect the, where their failures are at. You get the point like in Scanner Darkly where the drug addict who's like the agent, he can't even figure out if he's talking out loud or not or if he's just thinking or what the difference even is. And that is, the, but that's the world as a whole is moving into that. So the need to kind of elevate your, become elevated psychologically and spiritually is to kind of remove yourself from those people. There's going to be a lot of losers. There's going to be winners and losers in the future. And there's going to be a whole lot of losers, but there are going to be winners too, right? And you can be one. It's not impossible, but for some, and it, and it's not a matter of perfection. It's just some pretty easy stuff, but it requires some some big, uh, you know, some some big steps of courage to get there too. You have to say that you don't that you don't know everything. You have to kind of start getting to these paths. Like you have to start getting to those logic trees. You have to kind of forget a lot of this fucking conspiracy data point bullshit. Who works for the Rockefeller Foundation? What these people did? How NASA's connected to this? All this brain map shit. You kind of have to put that on the back burner for a minute. So that's gotten you where to, to where you are now, which is good. But the map is quickly becoming confused for the terrain in that aspect. So it's time to go back in and uh, and figure out where we're going to go next. Because clearly, there's just infinite data points. The value of collecting them all, that's an assumption one ought to challenge too. And then you're going to have to figure out, like, what do you know? How do you know it? How do you know you know? What can you know? And where do you start with that? You can't leave yourself completely vulnerable, but there will be some vulnerability, uh, quite a bit, in fact, involved. But you don't have to expose that, is what I mean everything but you do have to be honest with yourself and all this shit you know there's a lot of this demons have become the demonic has become confused with we are so presented with the perverted archetype that in it, which is the archetype in its, in its uh, perverted form is is the the demonic or the demonic is which is with that constant through media so as a result of that the, it's the familiarity that that and the archetype being kind of the the characters of the interplay now we've again confused like, you know the good guys and the bad guys what we're listening to the, the cultist and not the cleric because the cultist is dressed like the cleric we've confused the two the cleric acts like the cleric that's how you know that's he's the cleric
It's not what he's wearing. It's how he acts. But we confused the the one because of the dress. And as this is happening, as this is happening, this, this well, the Joker movie is popular right now, right? So you have a lot of this trickster archetype. But the trickster archetype is if he were if he operated the way people believe he ought to operate or he does operate, the, he'd never have a place in the pantheon psyche. God wouldn't have cursed us with such a such a malevolent force inside on the inside. The trickster, in truth, is a sort of a helpful thing, but he's not going to be what is presented now, which is this agent of utter confusion, this agent of, uh, of misinformation, this agent, agent of constant questioning, constant insertion of doubt, of never, ever learning from the day before, of never retaining the of being a perfect mirror of a student, or not a student necessarily, but a uh, cohort in the conversation, while actually just projecting back nothing, retaining nothing, projecting it back, asking all the same questions again the very next day, uh, preventing everyone from any kind of progress, driving you to some kind of level where you can't tell whether you're coming or going. You're constantly being told nothing is real or some shit like this. How do you know? Well, do you exist? Fuck, we got to start somewhere here. Like, what's the value of this shit? And then they have all these pat answers, which, well, questioning everything is good. Says who? Prove it. Prove it. It is not good to insert doubt into people's lives constantly. And nor, nor does anyone have the right to do so. It's not good to question everything all the time. If you insert, you take a child and you just insert all this doubt into it, which you say, oh, well, it's good to question whether, you know, it's pretenses, right? You know who does that? You know who, who, who constantly whispers in the child's ear? Do your parents love you? Are you sure? How do you know? How do you know? All this shit. Not anybody good. Not anybody with any good intentions. Some kind of fucking pedophile or somebody, you know? That's how these people segment vulnerable parts of the population. And this is what this fucking constant assertion of doubt, of, of empty questioning is doing. It's molesting the mind. You know, it's molesting the inner child. It's, uh, what do they call it? It's grooming the inner child for the freak show pervert camp coming up. Because that's where it's diverted your road off to. But instead of being able to chop its head off like Aragorn with the mouth of Sauron, you're stuck instead because the bombardment of images, uh, the imagery from the media, believing that this guy's your teacher. He's not even wearing any pants to class. He's teaching fifth graders and he's fucking naked from the waist down or something. You know what I mean? And it, it, well, I guess he should be the, you know, some fucking drag queen or something, you know? And well, I guess he should, he, he knows he's the archetype. He's not the archetype. You are. It's in you. This is some fucking evil spirit that you just need to put it into it. Stick up. You stick the damn vampire through the stake, through the heart, into the fucking ground so he's not coming up anymore. And then you walk on. And if he fucking, if it just makes you feel a little better, you go pour some gas on it, light it on fire. Whatever. It's not following. It's done. There'll be more on the way, along the way. But the better you get practiced at dealing with these damn things, then the, the quicker you become like Van Helsing and the quicker you're called in to actually deal with Dracula. Because he's there too. He's coming too. But it's just, th this is kind of... I think I've kind of taken this on a little bit of a, a journey through the psychosphere, but I hope that that's kind of had some value, you know, as far as what I was talking about. It does lead you to, to wonder, doesn't it, is still, where is everything heading? Where is everything going to? Taking it back to how do you know what you know?